0: We all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources. And we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Happy New Year! I hope your year list is off to a great start, and if it isn't, that's fine too. I don't know about you, but this year feels a little different, a little more hopeful, even if the change is an arbitrary move to a new number, it holds some power in our minds. And a new year list or yard list or whatever, alongside that slow lengthening of daylight and the hope that this pandemic that we've all been enduring might come to an end this year, fingers crossed. At some point, we deserve it, that's for sure. I took the opportunity early in this new year to put an end to my Finch superflight anxiety. Uh, maybe birders to the north of me don't feel this, but I was getting a little nervous that I was going to miss <laughs> this historic super flight in which evening grosbeaks are showing up evidently in Florida and Louisiana now. And people are saying, Whoa, we may never see this again. And it just, I don't know, it just made me nervous, you know, because I'd been out, I'd been listening for grosbeaks and crossbills, and I hadn't had one yet. So there's this guy about an hour away in Chapel Hill, who has reliably had this flock of several dozen evening grosbeaks at his feeders. And he is graciously letting people come over, stand in his backyard and watch his feeders in the morning. So I went and I did that. Let me tell you, friends, it was pretty spectacular. He counted 38 evening grosbeaks at one time. And I imagine that that was a pretty conservative estimate, because they kept coming and going. It was the first time I had seen Evening Grow in about 25 years, so that was certainly something. A great experience. Thank you, Bert Fisher, who I don't think listens to this, for opening up his house like he did. A side note, I chatted with him for a little while, at a safe distance, obviously, about his feeding setup, which also included some pretty impressive window window treatments to prevent bird strikes. And he told me that way back in 1998, he also had a big flock of grosbeaks at his feeders for a couple months. And that during that time, he went through 2,700 pounds of black oil sunflower seeds, more than a ton of black oil sunflower seeds during their stay. It was like 50 pounds a day. It's unbelievable. Thankfully, this flock, even as large as it is, kind of bugs out about noon Every day, so it doesn't eat them out of house and home. Plus, they prefer the striped sunflower seeds, so a little easier on the wallet. Uh, My superflank, so my superflight anxiety has lessened. If I don't find a crossbill this year, I'm okay with that. A little easier to find in North Carolina, but obviously that would be icing on the cake if it were to happen. And I apologize if in telling this story I have contributed to your own superflight anxiety. Just, you know, find yourself a friendly guy with a giant flock of gross peaks in his yard. It's easy, right? On the show today, let's talk bird of the gear. It is the pileated woodpecker, that red-crested captain of the hardwood forest, the loud, proud destroyer of logs, devourer of carpenter ants, a real superhero of a bird, and one that has been a spark bird for many. We announced it on New Year's Eve this year. That was new. What else do we have to do? Plus, there's The dynamic cover art by Juan Trevieso, who will try to get on the podcast here soon. Uh, I'll talk about Pileated Woodpeckers at the end of the show. But first, John Kreischer is one of the most influential ecologists of the last few decades, largely because of his many books about tropical ecology. But he's a birder at heart, as we all are. And his new book is about bird behavior. It's part of the Peterson Reference Guide series. It is a comprehensive look at why birds do what they do. And John joins me to talk about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of December 2020, the beginning of January 2021. With all the finches in Canada's boreal forest now in the south, it obviously opens up room for other finches to take their place and into this finch vacuum, not not really a vacuum, Uh, comes a photographed hawfinch from the Haines River, Yukon Territory. Not only a territorial first, but a first for Canada, and the first record of this Eurasian equivalent of our evening gross peaks away from Alaska, where it is a rare but semi-regular vagrant in the rarity traps in the West. It shows us that this superflight, not just limited to North American finches, Another cool first record story, this time from South Carolina, where a little stint discovered on a CBC in Charleston County was wearing a band that was traced to a bird observatory in Sweden. Otenby on the island of Erland, to be precise, this was only the second band from this observatory ever to be recovered in North America and the first shorebird. And there's even a photo of the bird, the actual bird in the hand in Sweden that you can pair with the photos taken in South Carolina. Pretty cool. Some other first to note, Nevada had its first record of Hutton's Vireo near Reno, evidently representing the interior subspecies of that bird. A western meadowlark in James City, Virginia is that state's eighth potential first record for 2020, a remarkable showing. A Western-type flycatcher in Blunt County, Tennessee, is a first as either Pacific Slope or Cordilleran would be a state first. Uh, many states just have the species on their list as Western-type, given how difficult they can be. And in the ABA's home state of Delaware, a Townsend's Solitaire in Lewis is a state first, leaving only West Virginia, Georgia, Kentucky, and Alabama as states in the lower 48 without a record for those that like extremely obscure bird trivia, and maybe as a motivation for birders in those states to go find a towns in Solitaire. No better time than now, evidently. Those are the highlights of the last couple weeks of rarities in the ABA area. As always, for a more complete look at the rare bird scene in the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning. That is at aba.org RBA, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Uh, My guest today is well known by any who have an interest in tropical ecology. John Kreischer is a professor emeritus of biology at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. He is the author of many books, notably Tropical Ecology and the Neotropical Companion, re-released as the new Neotropical Companion in 2017. But his most recent is about birds and their behavior, appropriately titled The Peterson Reference Guide to Bird Behavior. Uh, podcast regulars might remember that this was one of my favorite books of 2020. He is with me to talk about it. Uh, welcome, John. It is a real pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you, Nate. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: Many of your previous books have sort of focused on general ecology, sort of taking a very broad look at landscapes and, and how they work. What interests you about birds specifically that you felt the need to sort of focus on them in this book?
1: Well, it's kind of a closing circle effect, and I'll explain what that means. When I was a, a mere child of maybe eight years old, I got hooked on birds. And <laughs> uh, it was birds, birds, birds from that point on. My, I was fortunate enough to have a cousin who was equally interested, in, and both of our sets of parents uh, saw to it that we got around seeing birds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I was fortunate enough, thanks to the Windcoat Bird Club, now the mm-hmm windcoat audubon society that when i was 18 years old uh they sent me to the hog island uh, audubon society camp right. on hog yeah. island is a place i dearly love and still continue to go there uh and i learned ecology there in two weeks at least i learned what it was and i got ferociously interested in it and so in uh As an undergraduate and in graduate school, I took every course I could get in ecology and I graduated with a PhD basically in ecology and I did that from that point onward, which accounts for why I did three guides in the Peterson series on forest ecology, Mm -hmm. eastern forests and Rocky Mountains and California and the West Coast, and then got into the tropics. And my view of the tropics was I wanted to go there to see the macaws and Mm -hmm. to see the tanagers and the Yeah. But once I got there, uh, I just couldn't understand why there wasn't a nice book that would really explain the natural history and ecology of a tropical rainforest and some of the associated ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And I ended up writing one. And the whole time I was writing the first edition of Neotropical Companion, I kept saying, somebody's gonna beat me to this. <laughs> and, and I didn't care because there wasn't enough books there. There weren't mm-hmm. any books there anyway. So whatever. Uh, so I became a writer about ecology, but the one thing that was haunting me is I wanted to do one book before I retire uh, from writing about just birds, mm-hmm. just birds because birds have fascinated me and have been the reason for my view of life really uh for all my life and I wanted to just sort of acknowledge that and uh, bird behavior has always been my particular interest, so when I hooked up with uh, Lisa White at Niff uh, Harcourt. Um, Well, uh, the project uh, got started, and four years later, we got a book.
0: Yeah. Do Do you think birds are a particularly good taxa for exploring kind of general ecology? Because there are so many of them, but not like an overwhelming number of them. But they kind of find themselves into all these different niches, and it feels like every aspect of ecology can be explained, at least in some sense, by a bird.
1: Well, that's put very well, and I'm in complete agreement with you on that. Uh, there, you can teach a wonderful course in global ecology by focusing on birds, mm-hmm. uh, because they inhabit all the ecosystems, and uh, whether you're talking about rainforest, deserts, Arctic, uh, Antarctic, uh, or open ocean, uh, birds provide. Uh, A cornucopia of of examples and fascinating examples. One of the things I learned when I taught ornithology uh, to college students for 48 years uh, was that uh, they love it. They love the field trips, they love to see the birds, and uh, when I used an ornithology text I also use the field guide and I would tell them at the end of the semester, I understand that you can trade in your text and and sell it. But I said, I kind of hope you'll want to keep the field guide because you can have it with you wherever you go. And uh, I've had overwhelming numbers of students write me back and say, how are you doing? Professor Kreischer, by the way, I still have the field guide and still use it. So yes, I think you're right. uh, Bird's, go a long way toward helping us explain how the natural world works and why it's of value to learn how it works and to appreciate what basically is the extraordinary beauty of it.
0: Yeah. Turning back to, the, to your book on bird behavior, um, what do you think birders can learn from close observation of bird behavior?
1: I think birders have been coming closer and closer to becoming behavioral ecologists (laughs) for many years. I mean, I'm impressed by some, we have, I mean, I'm impressed by some of the accounts I read on eBird and Mm -hmm. and, uh, the various bird chats about, I saw a bird doing a peculiar thing. Has anybody ever seen a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And so I think birders are paying attention, but uh, to, to behavior and asking more questions about them. And fortunately, as you pointed out on your podcast where you reviewed the oral, uh, the uh, last year's bird books, mm-hmm. there are more bird behavior books now available that, uh, than there have typically been, although bird behavior books have a long history. Uh, and I think birders should uh, embrace the concept of the organism rather than the thing. Yeah. Uh mm-hmm. birds are real organisms with beating hearts and thinking brains and while they represent a beautiful example of of a cool animal uh they are three dimensional and they're alive and they're looking back at us as we look at them and they may have thoughts about us and there's nothing wrong with being curious about that and just watching it's um In these days of ornotherapy uh, (laughs) and during this pandemic, uh, I've talked to more and more people who have told me, I've just watched a robin for 15 minutes. I never did that before, but it was so interesting. And that's, you know, so I think... Um, maybe um, the timing is right for this array of bird books that has recently been published.
0: Yeah, I was just going to suggest that. I'm sure that as an author, there's a certain uh, frustration with putting out a book at a time when you can't necessarily go to bird clubs and talk about it or or do the kind of the typical book things that you would do when you have a new book out. But, you know, the the topic is such that, you know, this time where we are stuck at home and perhaps not traveling as much as we usually would to look for the new and exotic. um, There's a lot of interest in the familiar and what the familiar is doing. And, and, and it just feels like it's, it's a good time for a bird book like this, even if, you know, otherwise you might think it's a bad time for books in general.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's hardly, um, valid to complain in a year when so many people have suffered so much. Right. And I don't complain about it. Uh, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh and uh I do think that uh in some ways the concept of ornotherapy as we like to call it has really registered with yeah. a lot of a lot of people and uh that um it has been helpful in a small way, perhaps, for people to cope with this uh miserable situation that we found ourselves in and hope to be free of <laughs> relatively soon yeah
0: fingers crossed um this book is filled with a lot of kind of fun anecdotes. Have you been collecting these in your long career in biology and ornithology
1: oh yeah when i uh, that's that I uh, thank you for asking that. Uh, when I took students out and taught on and when I've taken groups out and led field trips and uh, and done global trips, uh, I'm constantly trying to interest them in more about the bird than just its name. And so y- you're right, I mean, I use them as they are, organisms that are interesting for various reasons. And uh, I have a writing style that isn't meant to sound overly technical or mm-hmm. overly academic. I When I wrote this book my in a subtle way I, back of my mind i was thinking i'm with a group of people or several yeah. people and i'm trying to explain this to them uh, in a way that they can understand that doesn't take 47 pages to, to write and <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I, as it was as it was nathan the text was too long i had to shorten it a little bit but uh <laughs> yeah that, that, that's just the way these things go
0: yeah I've, it's always a good practice i don't know i've written a couple books and yeah it is it is Uh, An interesting thing to have to like tighten things up a little bit. I do think it makes your writing a lot better uh, in the long run and a good editor can help you a lot to that. And Lisa White obviously is, is one of the best as far as natural history books is concerned are concerned.
1: Oh, I've been very, uh, over the years, I've been very fortunate with my books, uh, both uh, at Houghton Mifflin, now Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and Princeton University Press Mm -hmm. who have superb editors and copy editors and very, very lucky.
0: Is there a particular behavior or type of behavior that interests you the most or was sort of the most fun for you to explore and write about?
1: That's a difficult one, (laughs) Uh, but uh, there's there's one thing that I think is indirect along the lines that you're asking, and underappreciated. Yeah. And that is the rapidity with which birds perceive and live their lives. Yeah. I think that ha- that encompasses a lot of behaviors, of course, but uh, the very idea of a creature that has uh, what seem to be disproportionately large eyes mm. and a very... Big brains packed into a small head uh, and that can fly through a three-dimensional environment like a forest uh, with great speed and has to make hundreds of decisions in the course of the day. You know, things like a robin flying onto a lawn. uh, it decided it would land at that particular place in the lawn. That was a purposeful thought that the robin had. And I was pointing out to people this summer, it was a very hot day, and I was walking outside, and somebody asked me, you still looking at birds? And I said, yeah, yeah. look at that robin over there. What do, you what do you notice about it? And well, I don't know, it's, it's, it's under the tree. And I said, yeah, where it's shady and where it's a little bit cooler. And where it's more comfortable, so you know it made a decision that was going to get out of the sun. Uh, I presume that anyway. Uh, I don't know if you can apply the human theory of mind to birds. Some folks have tried, uh, but uh, I find that their behaviors are um, uh, all linked together in this just amazing speed at which most of them, particularly the little ones, live mm-hmm. their lives. And I also like, to answer your question a little bit more, I like migrations, so I enjoy yeah. the migration chapter.
0: <laughs> yeah, my, my, yeah, each of these chapters itself could be a book in and it itself, so that must have been... It could. You know, it, I mean, that's there's true. just a lot of information kind of packed into these things that's, that's really enjoyable. To that end, um, an anecdote that really stuck with me was the one where you were talking about the yellow crown night heron and, and the skill with which it dispatched uh, <laughs> yeah. a crab and a student of yours saying, mm-hmm. like, oh, I got lucky. Um this is this is sort of a similar thing that you just explained like these birds are making conscious decisions and you know with practice they're they're building up these skills that seem like nothing but these are actually like really difficult concepts like being able to angle into the wind like a gull flying into a, a stiff breeze and how it kind of turns its body so that it can move in one direction while it's kind of aiming off to the side a little bit I mean these things are constantly happening with birds and I don't know. I don't know whether we're underestimating birds or overestimating our own decisions that we make that causes us to think of these things as separate. But it's an interesting story that that I really appreciated.
1: No, I think they're, we largely do underestimate them mm-hmm. for the very reasons that you just cited. That was a kind of a gift to me with my students out in Salt Marsh <laughs> that morning, and, and the night heron was out there and did catch a blue crab, and, and before the night heron did, the one of my students said he had gotten up early and gone out there and tried to do some crabbing. He said, mm-hmm. there's no crabs in that channel, and at which point the night heron <laughs> picked up a big blue crab. And took it apart, ate it, and promptly got another one. So, yeah, uh, yeah those, are, those are things that, that uh, I think register with people, and they remember them years later.
0: Oh, totally. Um, I'm always thinking about my, my neighborhood red-shouldered hawks and, like, how good they are at finding snakes compared to
1: me. Mm-hmm.
0: Which, and I'm out looking for snakes a lot of the time, and, and they're finding them constantly.
1: Well, that's what I wrote in my book. I said, why don't you play a game with uh, and go out into the forest and pretend you're a brown creeper and, and go over to the bark of trees and see how much food you can find? Uh, brown creepers successfully make a living doing that day after day after yeah. day. Uh, probably you won't find diddly, yes. uh, <laughs> but that's yeah but but you know that's the that's what birds are. They're, yeah. they're specialized to do very, very incredible things that seem incredible to us. I, I think birds are the are the ultimate cell phone. Uh, <laughs> how you can get so much information in such a compact thing? Oh, uh, really, yeah. is is amazing yeah, yeah yeah is there
0: is there a species that you can think of that birders might find sort of relatively commonplace that is a a really good example of a you know a really complex or interesting behavior?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, When you look at any bird long enough, you would see that, I think. Uh, You have to remember that three of the most classic books in bird behavior, and by no means the only ones, there are others but was David Lack's uh, study of the uh, European robin mm-hmm. and, uh, Nicotin version study of the herring gulls and Martha yeah. Morris Nice's uh, exhaustive work on songs. First. Any of those are going to be filled with behavior that reveals itself to you. If you have the patience to mm-hmm. watch the bird long enough and you have control of your urge to be anthropomorphic, because that's <laughs> the thing too that you have to, to think about. Uh, but, um, I don't, I don't think there's very many birds out there that don't offer that. Uh, I'm just reading this new book on the Blackinson's fish owl. And oh, yeah. that's got to be one of the more odd birds of the world. I hope to see that uh, next year, but not in Russia and Japan. Uh, but there, there's a there's a bird that offers all sorts of opportunities to uh, and and makes it worth going and enduring these hardships and studying it. But try watching house finches and house sparrows yeah. interact, common birds, and and they they sometimes don't really like each other very much. And try watching house sparrows interact in a flock and look at the differences among the plumage of the males with regard to how black their throats are and and how that has an impact on on um uh, what they're doing so um it's out there and anybody who wants to become a bird behaviorist has no shortage of subject matter
0: mm-hmm. I, I feel like since i have you here I, I should talk about the neotropical companion books as well okay. which um, are among my favorite natural history books um, i read it for the first time ahead of my very first trip to the tropics and you know pulled it out from time to time while i was there so that might play a part in my feeling about it but even apart from that um, I really enjoy how comprehensive it is, while still being accessible. You sort of wrote, you sort of spoke about that a little bit earlier. Um, tropical ecology can be a, a really complex topic if you want it to be. Uh, did you intend for that book or any of your books, really, to be uh, sort of a casually written academic text or a heavier popular text? Because I feel like they they split that difference really well.
1: Well, I did. Um want them to be accessible. Yeah. And I guess I've been influenced by a lot of natural history writers, people like Edwin Way, Teal, way back when. And um, it's it's not just about writing factual material, it's about communication. Yeah. Communication is more than just writing a list of facts. And so I wanted to uh, take the approach of, of being a teacher in the field. I, I did uh, organize, uh, a tropical ecology field course in Belize with mm-hmm. my Wheaton college students back in, uh, 1978, 79. And, um, that, that really was my challenge is how do I take well, some of the students were very uncomfortable being yeah. in Belize. They felt like they were a long way from home and, and, you know, there were no cell phones or anything, but I, um, kept talking about the cool stuff in the forest and the insects. We had them do all sorts of things. And, um, so I developed that style that I like writing with, which is, uh, rather, I won't say informal, but, uh, I've, uh, but I hope easily communicative.
0: Yeah. There must be something about being an educator for so long, especially an undergraduate educator that, I don't know, like kind of hones your communication style in a way that, I mean, if you can reach a 19 year old fresh college freshman, um, then you could probably reach just about anybody.
1: Well, that that is the challenge, but uh, uh, the interesting thing is now there is a movement in college education to discourage lecturing in class mm-hmm. and to uh, uh, what they call flip the classroom and have the students learn on their own with the professor as kind of a, um, a guide in the process. But um, you lose something with that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're not all college professors for good lectures. But if you are a good lecturer, uh, it stays with your students, and it's not just your style that stays with them. It's the material that you convey to them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, basically that's how I try to write my books is the same way I try to teach my courses, which is the first thing you have to do is keep them interested. And if you can't get your students interested in something you've spent your life doing, then probably, <laughs> probably you ought to do something else.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe you should re reevaluate a little bit. <laughs> uh, maybe so, right. Um, so when you, you Neotropical Companion came out in kind of two versions the original Neotropical Companion um, in the late 80s, and then the new Neotropical mm-hmm. Companion about 20 years later. Um, well, it's actually it's, it's three versions. Oh all
1: right uh, it was the, it was the original little green book in nineteen eighty eight and then I about ten it. years later was a big revision, yeah, and then uh it finally came to be the book that I've always wanted it to be yeah. with the new Neotropical companion uh, a couple of years ago and
0: I, I guess after you published that first one, you were always writing or revising it in your head. you must have been for the i mean that's the way books are sometimes, but um were you limited by what was? the publisher was of actual able to do or
1: um oh is that, it is a, it's a silly little story but yeah. i was um i was uh, asked by uh, a press that uh, if i would write a real informal little mm-hmm. book on the neotropics and so that was the first neotropical companion but i didn't like it because it didn't have enough information in it but i liked how it sounded mm-hmm. uh for the information it did have and so that press was uh absorbed by a large company and they dumped my book but they they gave me the contract and so i actually um Went to a scientific meeting, an ecological society meeting, and went from vendor to vendor and editor to editor, and that's how I uh, formed my alliance with Princeton University Mm -hmm. Press. And then I wanted to add to it, so one thing led to another, and that first little green book uh, I was happy with when it was published. But I soon realized it was so lacking in information about uh, Amazonia and various other uh, things that I was desperate to revise it. And that I had no trouble with getting Princeton interested in doing yeah. that because the first edition Little Green Book did pretty well. Yeah. And so they did want a bigger book. And, and I'm very pleased with New Neotropical Companion. It yeah. is the book I wanted to write. Looks good. Reads well.
0: There's a lot of new information that's come out in Tropical Ecology, too, since then, I imagine that you were that must have been very exciting to be able to incorporate into that new book.
1: The essence of science is that it's old before it's published. And (laughs) uh, and and that's as it should be. Uh, I am. um, If I wanted to name my heroes this year, those heroes would all be in the laboratory and they were the ones that brought us the vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's science. And science is always changing, and it should. And there is a great deal more we can learn about uh, the workings of neotropical ecosystems. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, uh, I know the book will age, but it should.
0: Oh, we look forward to the new, new neotropical
1: companion, I guess. I think that's going to be somebody else's uh, gig. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of other plenty of great people out there.
0: John Kreischer is the author of uh, Many, Many Things, but most recently the Peterson Reference Guide to Bird Behavior. It is a great book, as they all are, uh, truly. Uh, thank you so much for your time, John.
1: Thank you, Nate. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Just how does one pronounce... Piliated woodpecker or maybe pileated woodpecker or maybe you know if we go by the latin pronunciation of i as e piliated woodpecker just to throw a wrench in the works we'll have to work on that I, I think it's one of those things where either any are fine in any case we had never chosen a woodpecker before for our bird of the year so why not go with the biggest one well the biggest extant one If the ivory-billed woodpecker is the Lord God bird, a name supposedly given due to observers' reactions to seeing it, perhaps the pileated is the good gosh bird or the heck yeah bird. It's a spark bird to many, one of those species that really leaves an impression. I have seen enough cell phone photographs excitedly posted to bird Facebook groups to know the truth of that. It is a bird that stands out in a field guide, and when you finally put eyes to it, does not disappoint a bird that if it lived in one of those out of country birding hotspots would undoubtedly be one of the targets. Big, loud, conspicuous. The pileated woodpecker is an emblem of wild woods, but also one of those birds that is taken to human altered spaces as well. Established neighborhoods that retain their big old trees frequently have pileated woodpeckers around. I don't remember (laughs) my first Pileated Woodpecker, sadly. eBird tells me that I saw it on December 24th, 1993. I was 13, just started keeping lists, and I was seeing new birds just about every day then. I do remember my last one, though, because I was walking with my family one afternoon, not all that long ago, at Guilford Courthouse National Military Park here in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I live. It is a National Park Service battleground commemorating a Revolutionary War battle. Nice piece of green space in the city, and so we were walking around the car loop, which is one of those things that's actually nice without cars, but I digress, when I heard the characteristic thack, thack, thack of a big woodpecker working a piece of nearly dead wood. And I looked up, pretty quickly found the thing, massive, as they always are. It always surprises me when I see one, how big they are. Hitching up an old oak, peering around the branches with those wild eyes before deciding that we aren't really much of a problem and continuing its work absolutely destroying this big broken off branch. So I pointed it out to my kids and my wife. And while none of them would consider themselves birders, certainly not the way I'm a birder, it's hard not to be amazed at a bird like this. So close, so animated, just annihilating this tree The thrashing was so complete that a big eight inch hunk of wood flew off the branch that the bird was on and landed in the middle of the road near where we were, we were standing. And we walked over and picked it up and you could actually see the beak impressions in it. Like someone had stabbed it with a screwdriver over and over and over really impressive piece of work. Ebert tells me that I've seen many hundreds of pileated woodpeckers over the years mostly in ones or twos but once as many as five in one day in November a few days ago which must have been a pretty great day but pileated woodpecker is one of those birds that even now with nearly three decades of birding under my belt I still get excited to see whether they're wailing on a piece of wood or flying over the highway with those spectacular black and white wings or unexpectedly turning up at a feeder they're pretty exciting heck yeah bird for sure do you have a pileated woodpecker story recorded on the voice recorder app on your phone and send it over to me at podcast We will do what we did last year and share some stories from listeners right here. I am looking forward to hearing what y'all come up with. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like what we do, please consider joining the ABA. You'll get magazines about birds, discounts to our partners, and the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community. You can get information about all our memberships, including e-memberships and household memberships, at aba.org slash join. I have some shout-outs to make. Bear with me. It's been a couple weeks. I've got a lot of people to shout out. Special thanks to... Rick King of Southfield, Michigan. Greg Power of Georgetown, Massachusetts. Teresa Worrell of Baltimore, Maryland. Steve Rogers of Portland, Oregon. Christina Crumbliss and the Crumbliss household of Brookfield City, Wisconsin. Adam Picos and family of Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. Emily Wynn of Lincoln, Nebraska. Cynthia Bonds, the Bonds family of Claremont, Delaware. Linda Moulton of Johnson City, Tennessee. Thomas Ryder of Rome, Ohio. Andrew McGowan and the McGowan family of Cumberland, Maine. Edward Leonard of the Leonard household of Snoqualmie, Washington. Ruth Richards of Coopville, Washington, Sharon Bauer of Winterset, Iowa, Suzanne Mortensen and the Mortensen household of Cedro Woolley, Washington, Tom Kynes and family of Wakanda, Illinois, Ann Huber of Urbana, Illinois, Debbie Flanagan and family of San Diego, California, and Teresa Reinhardt of Goffstown, New Hampshire, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot that you enjoy what we're doing here. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He didn't care which way you pronounce the woodpecker's name, as long as you aren't talking about Eastern Says and Black Thebes. Technical production is by John Lowry, who in addition to all the winter finches he's seen this year, he is very excited about the masses of red-breasted new thatches. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who always get their warblers in bulk at Costco. You know, Kirkland's warbler, great deal, look into it. You can find us online at aba.org on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders on Instagram at American Birding Association and on Twitter at ABA. Those cold days, these cold days that we're dealing with now cast me back to some of my favorite mornings, sea watching, all the mergensers and scooters streaming past. And if we're lucky, some outsets like DeVecki and Guillemot or a Jager or two. Happy days. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.